You're listening to the Opportunity Zones podcast. Get ready to grow your wealth with insights and strategies for qualified opportunity fund investors. And now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Welcome to today's Opportunity DB webinar. I'm Jimmy Atkinson, founder of Opportunity DB and Wealth Channel. And at Wealth Channel, we help high net worth investors grow their wealth with alternative investment strategies. Today's webinar is Opportunity Zone Tax Implications for CPAs. Today's webinar is sponsored by GPWM Funds. And joining me is Kirk Walton, co-founder and managing partner at GPWM Funds. Kirk, I'm going to get to you shortly, but before we officially begin, I have a few announcements I need to re read. Uh, yes, today's webinar is being recorded, and we're going to circulate a recording of this webinar to everyone by tomorrow. GPWM Funds is registered with the National Association of State Boards of Accountancy as a sponsor of continuing professional education on the National Registry of CPE Sponsors. And as a result, this is an NASBA-approved course. Webinar attendees are eligible to receive one CPE credit hour. No prerequisites or advanced preparation is required. So if you are a CPA and you'd like to earn CPE credit, these next few announcements are especially for you. Number one, in order to earn CPE credit, you must attend the entire session and respond to the poll questions that we're going to ask randomly throughout the hour. Number two, an evaluation form is going to be uh, provided to those who are seeking CPE credit to complete. We're going to provide you with the link to that evaluation form toward the end of today's webinar. We'll also email it around to anyone who, uh, who may have missed that, <clears throat> that, that link when we send it around at the end of the webinar here. So you'll have a couple of chances to complete that form. And then finally, number three, a certificate of completion will be com provided to you upon completion of the course. Now, if you enjoy today's webinar and you want to learn more about Opportunity Zones, GPWM Funds will be hosting a more in-depth session on August 23rd. We're going to provide you with more detail on that toward the end of today's webinar. Kirk will be talking to you about that. Uh, but, but in the meantime, if you have any questions about Opportunity Zones today, this is your chance. We want this program to be interactive. So if you have any questions for Kirk or me about Opportunity Zones, please use the Q&A tool in your Zoom toolbar. Don't be shy. We want a lot of questions. And we're going to save probably about 10 minutes or so toward the end of the hour for some live Q&A. One final announcement. Before we dive in officially, I need to read our legal disclaimer before we get going. Please note that the contents of this webinar are for general information purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or tax advice. The presentation does not constitute an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation of any security or any other product or service by Opportunity DB, Wealth Channel, or any other third party, regardless of whether such security product or service is referenced in this webinar. As always, please consult with your CPA or investment advisor before making any investment decisions. Kirk, we did it. Those are all the announcements that I have. So now let's officially get underway. Again, welcome to today's webinar, Opportunity Zone Tax Implications for CPAs. I'm joined by Kirk Walton, co-founder and managing partner at GPWM Funds. Kirk, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jimmy. And thanks for that introduction and uh, all of the legal disclaimers and uh, necessary information. It's great to be here. I'm super excited to be talking about Opportunity Zones. I'm always excited to talk about Opportunity Zones. And I'm grateful for your time and attendance uh, uh, for listening in on this. Uh, I'm going to share my screen and start talking through um, some slides that I prepared that I think uh, you know, will help us uh, get a quick overview. Our my goal well, today is to Kirk. I think that's perfect. I, I did want to just break in real quick before you get going. Let's do our yeah. first poll question. 
uh, as okay. required by NASBA in order to provide the CPA, CPE credits. We're going to be launching a series of poll questions throughout our presentation today. Uh, so poll question number one, do you have a client uh, currently looking to place a capital gain into a qualified opportunity fund? So we'll give everybody a, a few um, a few seconds to answer that question. And we've got, uh, let's see, almost half of the people here in attendance, 47% said yes. And then the balance says either no or I'm not sure. So Kirk, that's our first poll question. Well, especially for those who are considering uh, opportunity zones as a tax strategy, this would be very informative, very helpful. I want to spend more time on who we are. Uh, we've got a deep team and good relationships with lots of developers. Uh, we've done 15 uh, opportunity zone projects, 12 opportunity zone funds. Uh, we have projects from state of Washington to Florida, uh, South Carolina, Arizona, uh, Oklahoma, everything uh, across the country. Um, and uh, more importantly, I don't have enough time to talk about me. We got, we're here to talk about opportunity zones and the tax legislation uh, that created the opportunity zones. Uh, I'm gonna give you a highlight of some of the rules, but as we go through and talk about the rules, I'm also gonna share some tidbits and tricks. Uh, you know, I've been on a lot of podcasts talking about this and I was on one um, last year and afterwards the two panelists who do this podcast said, you know, I thought I knew a lot about Opportunity Zones until we interviewed Kirk Walton. And the other one said, yeah, he's like the Michael Jordan of Opportunity Zones. And I really, I was really grateful for that kind of compliment because, you know, I feel like Michael Jordan was really into the details and not just knowing the basics of basketball, but he knew the nitty gritty details. And I found that to be the case with respect to people who think they know a little bit about Opportunity Zones and the tax rules. They can understand some of the basic rules but until you get into the nitty gritty details, uh, it's not as easy to see how these rules can benefit communities and investors uh, for maximum potential. And that's what we're about is maximizing the potential uh, for the investors and the communities of these rules. So as we talk about rules, we'll share some tricks on how to maximize, use them for the maximum benefit. Anyway, the legislation itself was included in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. Uh, which was passed in December of 2017. On its face, the statute didn't really go anywhere and people were not doing opportunity zones when it was first drafted. Uh, there were some limitations that made it impractical. Uh, one of the limitations was it required you to put your money uh, to work within six months. The October 2018 proposed regulations gave us the reasonable working capital safe harbor, which allowed for a 30-month window. So that helped. Uh, but still, most people weren't doing it. Second batch of proposed regulations came out in May of 2019, and the needle went from here to here to here, uh, more favorable for the taxpayer with each iteration of these regulations. And then a full two years after the statute was passed in December of 2019, we got the final regulations. I didn't include it on this chart, but there have been a couple of technical corrections and COVID relief extensions and things like that. Uh, for the regulations. And there has been discussion uh, for potential extension uh, of the tax bill. Uh, many people know the current legislation is set to expire at the end of 2026. There have been a couple of uh, proposed legislations uh, introduced and uh, there'll be more, I suspect. And I don't really think this is gonna go away at the end of 26. Even if it does, uh, just uh, two months ago, there was a bill introduced that would basically take the framework of opportunity zones and create a new class of opportunity zones. 
and it would extend it through 2032. So uh, this is around and it's going to stick around, uh, but that's the basic framework of how we got here. Um, what are the rules and what do they allow us to do? It allows an investor to have a capital gain from just about any uh, capital gain transaction. Any dollar amount uh, would be taxed as capital gain on a tax return is eligible to be deferred into an opportunity zone fund. Uh, and if they do that, they pay later, which uh, is my um, moniker for uh, the gain instead of being taxed or uh, triggered now is instead recognized on December 31st of 2026. Uh, there's a potential to pay less. Now, this is expired, but I mention it because in all of the extension bills that have been proposed, this provision is revived. Uh, and uh, I think it will get revived and it would allow for a 10 or a 15 percent uh, reduction. So if you defer a million in capital gains and this uh, provision is revived, and you are eligible for the 10% uh, discount instead of having a million in capital gains come back on 26, only 900,000 in capital gains would come back on your 26 return. Uh, again, doesn't apply now, but uh, if there is an extension bill, it'll be resurrected. Uh, and the biggest deal uh, of what this is about is you don't pay at all. What do you not pay at all on? Um, there's a full step up in basis uh, to the sales price on the date of sale. Uh, which is unique in the tax code. Um, to, to get that, you need to own your opportunities on fund investment at least 10 years, uh, but there's no capital gain on the exit. And quite significantly, there's no depreciation recapture on the exit either because there's a full step up in basis to sale. Um, in addition, uh, you can uh, monetize the real estate holdings inside your Opportunity Zone fund through a, a debt finance distribution or cash out refi completely tax free, uh, assuming the debt's uh, qualified non-recourse financing, which all of our debt is. Um, of notes, eligible gain that can go into an Opportunity Zone fund is gain from a sale to an unrelated party. Uh, we had this situation where there was a family in Montana uh, and uh, uh, one brother wanted to buy out the other two siblings uh, from the family ranch. Uh, that would have wouldn't work as eligible gain, and uh, that was unfortunate. But uh, so as long as it's and there's also a twenty percent related party test in the opportunity zone space. Um, so that's uh, that's the basics as it relates to the investor. Um, there is a timeline within which uh, you've got one hundred and eighty days from the date the gain is triggered to be uh, to put the dollar amount of gain into an opportunity zone fund. There's no qualified intermediary required like with the 1031 exchange. You don't need to uh, even trace the same dollars. You just have to put any dollars. It doesn't, ha it doesn't have to be from the same account. Um, and uh, the 180 day clock is interesting because if it's, if it's me, Kirk Walton and my brokerage account and I sell uh, Tesla stock uh, and it's in my name, uh, that starts the 180 day clock. But if I sell, a, uh, if I am an investor in a partnership uh, and I get a K1 or anything S Corp or trust or estate that I get a K1 from, uh, and it's a full calendar year entity, with a due date for its tax return on March 15th, then my 180 day clock, I've got some flexibilities. And this is really important because uh, as CPAs, you're gonna be looking at tax returns. If you've got a client who has a K-1 from a transaction from last year that reports pass through capital gain, 
their window to defer that capital gain on last year's tax return is still open. You could have sold something in January of last year inside a partnership and your 180 day clock could have started and at your choice on the date of that transaction. So you could have done the Opportunity Zone Fund investment last January or through basically January to June. You could have also started it on December 31st and your 180 day clock would have run through January through June of this year, or assuming it's a full calendar year entity with a March 15th due date, uh, you've got 180 days from March 15th, which basically takes you through September 11th um, to um, take advantage of this for that investor. Um, so there's some quirky rules on K1s. There's also some quirky rules on installment sales. Uh, the 180-day clock can start on the date of the transaction or the date each payment is received, or you could lump all the payments together on December 31st. Um, so that's important to note. It's still open to people for last year's tax returns if they got the gain on a K-1. Now, um, I'm going to talk about uh, some of the acronyms and some of the things that you hear talked about uh, in this space. A QOF or a QOF is the Qualified Opportunity Fund. That's the entity uh, that was created uh, in the tax code. Uh, it's a quasi-tax sheltered entity. It's basically a partnership in almost every case. And that's the entity into which investors inject cash in an amount equal to the gain that they want to defer uh, and in exchange for uh, partnership interests in the QOF. Uh, by the way, if you over-contribute, it's possible to get split interests. Uh, if you have 800,000 in capital gain and you put a million dollars into a QOF, you end up with 800,000 of good QOF interest and 200,000 in uh, other QOF interests that act like any other partnership interest and don't get any of these special benefits. Um, there's a 10 year hold requirement from the date of the investment into the QOF. This is important. It's not, the 10 year clock isn't from the date the QOF acquires an interest in a QOZB, which we'll talk about in a second, or when the QOZB acquires any actual property. The 10 years from the date the investor puts the money into the fund. And the exclusion of gain applies to all of the holdings of the QOF, even if the QOF or the QOZB has some holdings that are not opportunities on property. Um, the QOF has its own limits. There's a 5% limit on cash uh, and a 90% uh, MAC. You must have at least 90% in good property or qualified opportunities on property. Uh, if you don't meet those tests, there can be some adverse consequences, but we don't have enough time to go through uh, the ramifications of that. Uh, it's pretty easy to meet the tests as long as you um, follow the rules and stay, uh, stay in the right areas. Um, the QOZB is the entity into which the QOF takes the investor cash and drops it down into, typically it's a single purpose entity that owns a real estate project. Um, technically, you can do uh, as a qualified opportunity zone business an operating business. Uh, in practice, almost all of the opportunity zone fund dollars that I've seen and all the opportunity zone funds that I've seen uh, almost all of them are going into a real estate project. There are some who are exploring operating companies or tech startups, and it has its application there uh, as well. This could be any business, basically, that's in the zone. There's a couple of excluded industries like a golf course, a tanning salon, a liquor store, uh, gaming, gambling, uh, gambling uh, entity. 
But in general, it's very broad and just about any business uh, in an opportunity zone could qualify. Uh, but, you know, I come from Silicon Valley and advising uh, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley. And I got familiar with uh, qualified small business stocks, section 1202, section 1045, really early on in my career in the 90s. And uh, that gives people an opportunity for up to 10 million of tax-free gain uh, on a startup. Uh, and you don't have any geographic restrictions Whereas with the opportunity zone rules, you got to operate in a certain location. You got a 10 year hold here and you have a five year hold requirement with the uh, qualified small business stock and 10 million is a lot of tax free gain. So in practice, uh, I'm seeing the opportunity zone dollars used to hold real estate uh, and not uh, for startups and tech startups. And we're still using qualified small business stock for that. Um, there's a reasonable working capital safe harbor down at the QOZB which is significant because it allows you 30 months basically with no testing requirements. Um, so the timeline starts with the capital gain. There are some quirks on the clock we mentioned. The investor has 180 days to put their dollars into the QOF. Then the QOF has its timeline. It has a test every June 30th and December 31st. It has a timeline to inject that cash down into some good property which uh, in practice is almost always qualified opportunity zone business partnership interests. Some partnership interests from some new special purpose entity where the QOF sends cash down and receives partnership interests in the project level entity in return. Then the project level entity can have 30 months to come up with the spending plan, uh, 30 months to spend the money through a written plan uh, and inject that money into uh, assets that qualify as qualified opportunity zone property. By the way, there's a you can even get another 30 month period with a second round of financing or funding uh, on on the project. So you can stretch this out for a very long time. The rules uh, in general are exceptionally flexible. Um, once this qualify, once this reasonable working capital safe harbor um, expires. Then there is a 70% test where they must hold at the QOZB level, 70% must be qualified opportunity zone property uh, to qualify. If you meet that test, if you've got 71%, then 100% of these holdings count for the good property test and the 90% test at the QOF level. Um, so what's good property down below? By the way, the reason uh, you almost always see a two-tier structure money from investor going into a quaff and then from the quaff down to a QOZB is because you got a 70% test, which is easier to satisfy the 90% test. And this reasonable working capital safe harbor only applies to the QOZB, not the QOF. Technically, the QOF could take the money and go out and buy qualified opportunities on property just at a single level without this two tier. But in practice, you never see it and that's why. Um, Let's see, so what's a qualified opportunity zone property? Almost always, it's a partnership interest in the QOZB uh, and then for the QOF. And then at the QOZB level, it holds tangible and intangible property used in a trader business in certain geographic regions that are designated as opportunity zones. Um, let's see, uh, you can only do this two-tier structure uh, as of now. You can't have a QOZB that has a, another subsidiary unless it's a wholly owned subsidiary. That might change uh, with an extension bill. 
let's see, uh, what, what is the property, the tangible property? It must be acquired from an unrelated party, must be used in active trade or business, can't do a single tenant triple net lease. Um, the original use has to begin while owned by the QOZB uh, or substantial improvement of the property while owned by the QOZB, which is defined as doubling the basis in the building. All right, so let me give you some examples of this. Uh, one, uh, no single tenant triple net lease. I got pitched uh, a project uh, in California uh, early on in the Opportunity Zone days. And there was this nice pitch deck. There was a tax opinion letter from a major accounting or major law firm. They had a major accounting firm who were doing the auditing. And the project was uh, to build a new building and it was a single tenant and it was a triple net lease. Uh, and they were raising money as if it was an opportunity zone project. And right, I said right out of the gate, that's not going to work. Uh, and they pushed back on, oh, we've got this big uh, law firm in LA that says it's going to work. And I pulled up the regulations, which I linked to at the end here. Uh, and I showed them that, you know, uh, what's an active trader business for opportunity zone purposes. And it just says in one of the examples, a single tenant triple net lease is not an active trader business. The next example is a, a building with three floors where one of them is a triple net tenant and the other two aren't. And that is okay. Where the line in between there is, nobody knows. Uh, but that's the guidance from the IRS. So you can't do something quite as simple. Um, passive activities in this space are active. In other words, owning real estate counts as an active trader business for OZ purposes. That's, uh, that's interesting. Um, original use of the property. You know, uh, when, when you distill what the Opportunity Zone Fund does for wealthy investors is it creates a wrapper within which they can hold their real estate holdings. They're going to own real estate anyway. You all have clients, I assume, who are wealthy. Uh, I suspect most of your wealthy clients own real estate of some kind. Uh, the, the difference between owning real estate in an Opportunity Zone and outside an Opportunity Zone, the tax ramifications are uh, quite significant in favor of the opportunity zone real estate. And so as long as you can find real estate in an opportunity zone that performs at, on par or close to on par with what your other real estate holdings would do, uh, then the opportunity zone has a significant advantage. Uh, it's an uneven playing field. Um, but within the real estate uh, spectrum, there are a lot of uh, differences between risk and return um, profiles of various real estate projects. So I want to mention new use uh, and talk about that. Uh, we did a project uh, where we acquired an apartment complex in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, right before it had reached completion. Uh, and this is an asset that had never been placed in service. And so we acquired it, uh, placed it in service that constituted new use. Uh, it was renting out, you know, a few months after we acquired it. Uh, very low risk on the risk spectrum uh, in terms of we avoided the development risk, uh, the timeline, uh, all of those things. Um, and we were closer to a cash out refinance uh, date. In fact, we did a cash out refi and the investors received about 35% of their money back uh, about two years after uh, we acquired it and burned through the lease up period and the concessions. Um, so that's a pretty safe investment, and you can do that and still qualify as an opportunity zone investment. Um, if there's a building that's been vacant five years, any use into that building uh, would constitute a new use. Um, or you can also do new development. You can buy some piece of dirt or some building, knock it down and build new. 
that's going to give you good asset in the for opportunity zone purposes. Uh, substantial improvement is where you take an existing building, uh, you allocate basis when you acquire it to the land and the building. Uh, in aggregate, you must spend uh, enough to double the basis of the building uh, or the you know the tangible property. Uh, you don't need to double your basis in the land, uh, and if you do that then it constitutes good property. The purpose, the public policy behind this rule is to not just go buy real estate in an opportunity zone. They wanted, Congress wanted uh, investors to buy real estate and do something to improve it and improve the area. So build new construction, substantially remodel an existing building or take an old vacant building and put it uh, into use, into some new use. Um, where are these opportunity zones? Oh my goodness, opportunity zones are literally everywhere. Um, I think they cover, I heard they cover about 16% of the surface area of the country. Uh, and it's 11% of all census tracts. Um, and there are some opportunity zones that are deeply distressed areas. And there's some opportunity zones that are not deeply distressed areas uh, and really have no business, of, uh, in my opinion, of providing some massive tax benefits. So, but how did we get them? Uh, they started with the 2010 census. And the economic data for 2010 census, they ran a screen for basically low income. And 40% of all census tracts were eligible to become opportunity zones based on that original screening. And then after that, each state uh, was allowed to select roughly 25% of their census tracts on that list of 40% and put a, almost like a map where you take, all right, here's some tracts that are eligible for this. And I'm gonna put the gold OZ star on these and these and these. Um, and so that's how we got them. Uh, and uh, uh, the 2020 census has no effect on where the OZs are or the economic data that now shows some of these census tracts are doing just fine. Um, and that's something that might change uh, in an extension bill. But as of now, uh, they're everywhere and some of them probably shouldn't be opportunity zones and that might change. Hey, Kirk, okay. I, wanted to, I wanted to break in Perfect. for a minute here because I want to fire up our second poll question. I'm launching that right now. Uh, we want to know, how would you rate your level of experience with Opportunity Zone funds on a scale of one to five? Are you a total beginner? Or are you highly experienced? Maybe you feel like you're somewhere in between. So let's end this poll now and share the results. And Kirk, it looks like uh, about a third of the people here would consider themselves total beginners. So um, that's great. And more more than half of you are uh, rated a, rated yourselves a one or a two. So we're glad to uh, help spread some education to folks who might uh, need a little bit um, getting up to speed, right, Kirk? You know, and that's consistent with what I see. Even though the Opportunity Zone has been around for a long time, uh, there is still so much uncertainty. That one of the issues was in the first two years of its passage, um, there was a lot of ambiguity, concerns, questions, and the regulations hadn't been fully evolved. So it didn't look as attractive. Uh, so if you tuned into the Opportunity Zone channel, uh, you know, and learned about it during the first 24 months, you don't really know how the story ended. And the, like I said, the regulations got more and more favorable for taxpayers as it went on. It was almost like there was a real estate developer in the White House when these regulations were being drafted. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, so they're very, they are quite favorable for um, investors, but they also are quite favorable for uh communities uh and you know i wanted to show um let's see 
uh, this, you know, there's this, there's this uh, policy entity, Economic Innovation Group in Washington, D.C., uh, that has been a major proponent of opportunity zone tax law uh, and kind of had the genesis for the idea for this tax law. And they track and do reporting on it. Um, and they mentioned just through the 2020 uh, reporting years, which is the last tax return data that were available at the time this report was published, the opportunity zone investments had reached 3,800 communities or almost half of the OZ census tracts that could be you know, eligible for some investment. So that's a broad impact. Now for comparison, it took 18 years for the new market tax credit investment to reach an equivalent number of communities. Uh, this, this truly is uh, the most impactful geographic-based tax incentive in history. Uh, it's a very big deal. Uh, but despite it being a very big deal, it is quite common for me to run into people who are tax professionals and experts in their field, real estate developers, investors, investment advisors, who still know very little about it. Uh, it, it truly is just uh, something that is obscure if you haven't uh, run across it, but so incredibly impactful for the right families and for the right communities. So I'm grateful again to be have this opportunity to share about this, something I'm so passionate about and is making such a huge impact in this country. Um, here, here's another report from EIG, Economic Innovation Group. The emerging evidence suggests that opportunity zones have already achieved a combination of expansive geographic reach, large-scale private investment, and significant economic effects that is unique in the history of U.S. place-based policy. So you're learning about something that's a big deal. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Um, but uh, yeah, that's it's not unusual to see um, uh, people newly exposed to this. Um, okay, so that's a good overview of the basic rules uh, uh, surrounding this. Now I'm going to talk about how this can work for uh, some clients' benefits. Um, so uh, uh, you're going to see a lot of sponsors. When you go out there and you want to take advantage of this tax law, this is how we started too, is uh, we ran the family office for some venture capitalists and entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley. Um, uh, and we went out, they had, they had capital gains at the time, uh, these uh, regulations were rolling out and we went out and looked for, uh, opportunities on funds that we could invest in to take advantage of this, uh, great new tax incentive. And all of the opportunities on funds, uh, that we looked at, uh, were getting the rules wrong. They weren't maximizing the value, uh, for the investors. And so I want to point out some of the ways to utilize these rules for maximum benefit here, as you consider which opportunity zone funds to go invest in uh, for your investors. And these are just some highlights of some things uh, to uh, look at. Background of the sponsors and the fee structure. Is it two-tiered waterfall crystallization events? I'll talk about that in, in a second in more detail. The duration is a very big deal, 10 years or uh, longer than 10 years. Uh, ability to reinvest cash flow is also, I consider, a big deal. Uh, what type of projects are they doing? It really is all about the projects. You know, the, the opportunity zone tax incentives won't make a bad project good, but it can make a good project enormously impactful. And then there's some state tax considerations. Um, 45 of the states uh, conform to the federal or don't have a state income tax. So there's 45 good states 
there's a few bad states, notably New York and California, uh, where they do not recognize these uh, the federal tax rules here. Um, let me talk about the impact of 10 years versus a long-term hold. Almost to this day, almost every Opportunity Zone fund out there is targeting a 10-year hold requirement. Uh, but the maximum hold requirement is through the end of 2047. Uh, the logic that applies now, and every presentation I've seen has some slide like this where they have these two columns, and here's what happens if you take your $10 million in capital gain and you pay your 30% in tax, 23.8 federal, and then assume about a 6% state, so you're paying about 30% tax. You got $10 million gain, you got $7 million to invest somewhere, you drop that $7 million somewhere. If it grows at, I don't know, 8% a year, uh, you know, you're getting five hundred and sixty grand in growth the first year because it's 8% of 7 million and then so on and so on and so on. And then 10 years later, you cash out and sell. I've done the math. Uh, and, you know, if you did that and grew it linearly at 8% for 10 years and then cashed out, and then you compare that with somebody who did an opportunity zone fund, had the same 10 million in gain, dropped the 10 million in the opportunity zone fund, had the opportunity zone fund grow at 8%. Well, it's getting 800 grand in the first year because it's you know, 8% of 10 million. So it's at the same percentage, but a larger base. And even if you take uh, money out uh, in 2020, in early 2027 for the taxes uh, and keep it growing uh, inside the Opportunity Zone Fund at 8% for 10 years and then cash out and don't pay any tax, the difference is uh, e enormous. It, it adds almost 5% a year uh, to the uh, net after tax return uh, if you're getting eight or 10% a year uh, nominal return. And that's just through the first decade. Uh, and so you'll see that. And, that, and that's the logic uh, explains why you should do an opportunity zone fund. Uh, but in reality, the same logic would apply at the date that is 10 years from now. Uh, and it's this, you know, if you run it, if you run that same logic another 10 years, the second decade is almost twice as impactful as the first decade. It's a logarithmic curve and it gets better and better and better. So why get off the ride uh, at just 10 years if you don't need to? Remember, you can monetize real estate assets inside an opportunity zone fund with a cash out refinance and it can return money tax-free. You don't even have to wait 10 years for that. You can do a cash out refi uh, as soon as the project is cash flowing and is eligible for that. Uh, it, if it's after 24 months, it's presumed to be, you know, a good refi. Even if it's before 24 months, there's a presumption it's not. It's a presumption of returning your own money if it's within 24 months. Uh, but you can rebut that presumption if you happen to have the unique project that within 24 months is suddenly built up new, leased up, stabilizing, can cash out refi. So you can do a cash out refi whenever the project can support that, and you can monetize the asset that way tax free. You don't need to sell it. The, the ability to continue depreciation deductions longer than 10 years is huge. And as money that is left on the table, those depreciation deductions from years 10, three years, 20, whatever, is, is, has monetary value for everybody. Uh, they can either use those passive losses now or when they have more passive income later or when they sell the asset, it's, free it's freed up. So the longer hold times have definite value from the depreciation capture, and you may get additional Tax free appreciation. How many of you have, you know, ask yourself this question. How many of you have known someone who's owned real estate for more than 20 years, you know, and then did they have a terrible exit or a very, very significant gain on the exit? 
that's what this does is it allows you to have 20 years of real estate ownership without uh, you know tax on the exit. Uh, and I use the analogy of uh, the Roth IRA. You know, you can cash out completely tax-free from your Roth IRA in five years and at age 59 and a half. But who starts a Roth IRA with the game plan to cash out in five years and age, at age 59 and a half completely tax-free? Nobody starts a Roth IRA with that game plan. Why? Because, you know, five years of tax-free growth is great, but 10 years is better. And in my space, 10 years of tax-free growth is great. And 10 years of depreciation deductions that I don't pay depreciation with capture on is great, but 20 is better. Um, by the way, you get basis in uh, that allows you to take these depreciation deductions in your own dollars when they are included on your 26 return. And you get basis in qualified non-recourse financing, the debt that's used to construct or improve the project right away. So we have projects that are throwing off massive passive losses during the development phase, which is incredibly useful for a tax strategy. Uh, and those losses are from depreciation deductions that are not subject to recapture. It, it is truly free money. Um, let's see, reinvestment of cash flow. Here's another thing that all of the opportunities on funds to this day get wrong. Uh, when money comes back from a project, from a cash out refi, net operating income, sale of a parcel, uh, that money can be distributed out to the investors, or it can also stay within the QOF and be reinvested into other opportunities on projects. So we had a project in Melbourne, Florida. We bought an old Sears that came with 14 acres. Uh, we're converting the Sears box store into self-storage, and we sold off uh, a chunk of the parking lot, which we didn't need. We didn't need a 14-acre parking lot. And we sold that off, and yeah, that triggered a small capital gain for those investors, but we had enough losses elsewhere that we weren't worried about that. But we took that money uh, and recovered almost 80% of our total cost and got that money back and used that to go acquire a huge tower that was already in existence that we're rehabbing. Um, so that created two projects out of one. Um, again, similar to a Roth IRA, how you would reinvest your dividends rather than sending the dividend checks from stocks in your Roth IRA to your checking account, you reinvest them so you can buy more stocks that appreciate tax-free. Um, that's another missed opportunity that I see uh, almost every opportunity fund doing. Uh, rehab versus new construction. Here's another trick. A qualified improvement property is eligible for bonus depreciation. Now, QIP is... Uh, the money spent to improve the interior space of an existing building that is used for commercial purposes. Commercial purposes is a test at the gross revenue level. And as long as 20% uh, uh, of the gross revenue is from a commercial per, um, tenant, uh, it's going to be deemed to be a commercial project. Um, I might have that backwards. I'm so sorry. I think it's 80%. Yeah. It's a 20% test right at the beginning. I'm so sorry, I'm having a brain cramp. Uh, but it's a very easy test to satisfy. So we have projects that are mixed use with apartments and commercial. Uh, and even on the apartment side of things, the whole space qualifies as QIP. Uh, and what that does is it's eligible for bonus depreciation on the date it's placed in service. So all of the improvement costs, like we have a, a project in, in Reno, uh, Nevada, and it's this uh, old hotel and casino. And uh, some of the 
hotel rooms were converting to apartments. Uh, but all of the cost of the, most of the budget is remodeling the interior space of this building. Uh, and so I'm ending up with uh, QIP and depreciation deductions uh, also with a cost segregation study that are in excess of the cash into the property. So during the development years, we will throw off depreciation deductions and passive losses greater than uh, the capital gain dollars that go in. Uh, why is that useful? Well, um, in 2026, when that capital gain comes back, if, if I had an investor who put money in from a real estate sale, my passive losses that I generate during the development phase can come back, will roll forward and roll forward, and then can offset most, and in some cases all, of the capital gain that comes back on their 26 return. In other words, if you have someone who's contemplating a 1031 exchange, instead of a 1031 exchange, they could put their money into an opportunity zone fund. And with the 1031 exchange, you have to do the whole enchilada, uh, all of the dollars. And the first dollars you don't do is presumed to be taxed at the highest rate. With the opportunity zone, you just take the gain dollars on top and your basis, you can take out and give yourself some liquidity. You can take the basis and put it in your checking account tax-free. Just the amount of the gain needs to go in uh, to the opportunity zone fund. Uh, with a 1031 exchange, you don't get new basis in your new assets that you just acquired. With an opportunity zone fund, you do get basis in your own dollars eventually and in the bank dollars right away, assuming it's qualified non-recourse financing. Uh, so you're getting deductions right away. Um, and then in 26, yeah, the capital gain that you deferred from this this potential 1031 exchange transaction, the capital gain you deferred comes back on your 26 return. But if you fill out the form right, and I'll show you that in a second, it comes back as the same character. So it comes back as capital gain from a passive activity, which can be offset by passive losses, even the passive losses that those very dollars generated between now and the end of 2026. Uh, so that's huge. Um, there's also massive uh, multi-generational wealth transfer uh, strategies here. It has uh, enormous impact. It's the perfect asset for a grant or trust. Um, the, if there's no income respective decedent on death, it, your heirs step right into the shoes. It keeps on growing. There's no step up in basis at death. You don't even want that. The step up in basis is timed perfectly to the date of sale, whenever that is relative to the date of death. Um, here's something that's super important, and we're getting close to the running out of time. Uh, every investor who has an opportunity zone fund investment must include on their tax returns the form 8997, and you'll see it here, every year that they own any interest in any opportunity zone fund. And basically this forms, part one is how much OZ stuff did you have at the beginning of the year? Uh, how much new OZ uh, qualified opportunity fund interest did you acquire during the year? How much, and part three is how many of uh, OZ interest did you dispose of during the year? And part four is, okay, how much qualified opportunity one, opportunities on fund investments do you have at the end of the year? And then you take this and that becomes part one for the next year. So this is the way the IRS tracks all of this uh, and makes sure that the investor holds it and continues to hold it throughout the 10-year hold. There's this column D here, special gain code. I've highlighted it. This is probably the most important, as CPAs, this might be the most important thing in this whole webinar. 
Um, if you have gain from a real estate transaction, a passive activity, you absolutely want to put a B as in Bravo in this special gain code column because that tracks it as gain from a passive activity. And that allows the gain that comes back on your 26 return to be offset by the passive losses. So that's, uh, um, that's um, you know, that's, that's the most important thing, I think, in this webinar. Um, let's see. Oh, there's potential extra benefits if you get real estate professional status. We don't have time to go into that. Here's some extra resources. Jimmy Atkinson's webpage is our webpage. You can find a bunch of other webinars that have been on and things like that there. Uh, here's a link to one of the proposed bills. I do think you'll see another one. Here's a link to EIG's brief on, you know, the impact. Um, questions. Uh, Kirk, that was awesome. We've got. Let's do, let's do got another poll. Have we, done all of our, have we done all of our poll questions? Uh, we have not. I'm going to get to that in a second. Thanks for reminding me. Kirk, are we making these slides available to? Absolutely, I can send these around, sure. Okay, well, I've I've already posted them to our website, so I'm gonna post a link to it right here. I just wanna confirm with you. So uh, the slide deck link has just been posted in the Zoom chat. Feel free to download that. We're also gonna email it to everybody. So you'll have a couple chances to download it. And then let's fire up that uh, final poll question of the day here, launching it now. Um, Kirk and his team are just curious, do you feel comfortable vetting OZ funds? Yes or no? We'll give everybody a, a few seconds to get that one answered. Um, and while you guys are looking at that, I guess I can, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get to some of the questions here, Kirk. We have a ton of questions, so I don't know if we're going to be able to get to all of them. Um, but I we'll figured there would be. Kirk's e we'll include Kirk's email address, um, and we'll reach out to you if we don't get your question answered. Um, first question came in from Murdy. Uh, Murdy's been waiting a while. He was the first question to get asked here. Can we combine capital gains from different funds to invest into an OZ? That's a great question. And yes, um, we have had investors who have had capital gains from different uh, transactions, multiple transactions, and just do one check for that investment. Uh, on, when you report it on the Schedule D or the Form 8949, uh, the way it's reported to claim the deferral of gain election is you report the capital gain event that happened. And then on the next line underneath it, you put deferred, basically you indicate it was deferred. You write the EIN for the OZ fund it went into uh, and you subtract the gain dollars that you deferred. Um, and there's a special code that goes there. So that's how uh, it's uh, reported to claim the deferral of gain election form. And that has to be on the a timely filed tax return uh, for the year of the capital gain event that you are deferring. But yes, you can combine multiple different capital gains into one check. In fact, um, the benefits of this are, are, are so impactful. We've had people who have tried to generate capital gains. You can take your uh, uh, realized gain loss report uh, from your brokerage firm and sort it by transactions that triggered a gain and just circle the ones that had a gain. Like if you've got a million in capital gains and a million in capital losses, you may think you don't have a capital gain to defer into an OZ fund. But watch this. Uh, you can take the million in gains and put it into an OZ fund. Your million in losses, now you don't have any capital gains. So you get, you know the rules, you're all CPAs. So you get 3,000 this year, 3,000 next year, 3,000 next year, and it rolls forward, rolls forward, rolls forward. And then 
what's left over is still there when your million in capital gain comes back on your 26 return. So those losses are still going to offset the capital gain, but it allowed you to get into real estate that you can own uh, for 20 years uh, without tax on exit and without depreciation recapture. Um, that's, that's perfect, Kirk. I just want to share the results of our third poll question there. Looks like uh, close to a 50-50 split there with uh, folks in the room today feeling comfortable vetting OZ funds. That was our last poll question. Thanks to everybody who participated. Uh, we had a couple questions about improving buildings in under an OZ. So, so this, this particular person, Frank asks, Hey, I own an office building in an opportunity zone. I want to make substantial improvements. Installing a solar power system and EV chargers would investing in these improvements qualify. Great question. Uh, it depends on who did the investment in these improvements. The OZ benefits are stackable. In other words, we have a project where we're getting historic tax credits. Uh, we also get, a, you know, that you can get, uh, uh, low-income housing tax credits, uh, you know, you can stack and get extra benefits. You can get the environmental credits, uh, things like that. They're stackable. Uh, in your situation, yeah, to get any of these OZ benefits, you got to go back to the very beginning. If you don't start with this step and go through each hoop in order, you personally will not get these tax benefits. And it's quirky that these, these are the rules, but these are the rules. It starts with a capital gain transaction in a sale to an unrelated third party. Then the, the entity or person who had that capital gain transaction deposits cash into an OZ fund in exchange for interest in the OZ fund. Then the OZ fund deposits cash into a QOZB in exchange for partnership interest in the QOZB. Then the QOZB acquires property. A building is typically, or land is typically what we're seeing. Then the, in the hands of the QOZB, the entity is substantially improved or put to new use. Uh, and substantial improvements would be to double the basis in the building. Addition of solar panels would qualify as improving the property, absolutely. But if you already own the building and the building is in an opportunity zone, then the government doesn't think you deserve these tax benefits because the public policy behind this tax law was to take the trillions of dollars in unrealized capital gains and recognize those capital gains and motivate people to take money out of the stock market and inject it and improve uh, other communities. So if you already owned it, they don't think you were motivated to, you know, do to jump through the hoops that they want you to jump through. So therefore you're not gonna get the benefits. It's also tricky if you try to take your existing land and partner up with somebody else. Well, why doesn't somebody else come in? I'll still own it, I'll stay on, I'll create a partnership or I'll contribute my land or my building and somebody else will contribute the money and we'll go out and prove it. You know, you are not going to get the opportunity zone benefits e even though the other people might because your partnership interest didn't come through those hoops of capital gain, dollars in cash into a cloth. In fact, the regulations even had this. What if I had, what if uh, we got together and our fund bought your property and now you have a capital gain and then you contributed your capital gain into our fund? Well, there's the circularity of cash flow doctrine that would, that would say your gain is not eligible gain because under the disguised sales rules, 
which still apply to all partnership transactions, including opportunity zones, under the disguised sales rules, um, because you put money in within two years, it would be deemed as if you contributed the property into the fund rather than the cash into the fund. And the hoops are cash from the investor into a quaff, quaff into the QOZB. So even in that scenario, you're not going to get the benefits. Why they're so particular about that is still kind of a mystery, but in general, the public policy was to motivate people to take money off the sidelines and out of the stock market and put it into areas. So in your case, your best move is to sell the asset to some random stranger and go do another Opportunity Zone project right across the street because you already own a building in an Opportunity Zone. Your returns are going to be the same as the guy who has the building across the street. But if you follow these rules and jump through these hoops, your net after-tax returns are going to be substantially better inside an Opportunity Zone fund for owning the exact same building, basically. You got to have twin towers, one in the zone, one out of the zone. The investment experience of the investors who do jump through those hoops and do it in the zone is it's an uneven playing field. In fact, the biggest criticism of this program for those who criticize it is they consider it to be a, a gross giveaway to the ultra wealthy. The biggest criticism is it's too much benefit to the ultra wealthy. Uh, at the same time, there are communities that are being completely transformed by this benefit. So anyway, That's I hope that great. helps answer your question. Well, we got time for a, a couple more questions here. Um, this one is from Zach, came in early, pretty simple, but I think there might be some nuance to it. What is the 10-year hold date start? When does that clock start ticking? This is a great question. It starts the date the investor acquires an interest in the Opportunity Zone Fund. So, you know, I mentioned we had a project in Florida where we sold off a parcel and another where we did a cash out refi. Uh, those same investors in the funds took that money and went out and acquired an interest in another OZ project. Um, I could cash out those original OZ funds 10 years after their start date, even though some of the projects were only on six years or five years. Uh, and all of the assets could be eligible for the exclusion of gain uh, because it's 10 years from the date the investor put their money into the OZ fund, not how long the OZ fund owned a particular asset. In fact, you can even have non-OZ assets. I've seen people talk about holding crypto or stocks as part of that 10% slice that you, you, know, you can have as non-OZ property. I don't do anything like that, but I've seen people try to game the system or down at the QOZB level, have the business have 71% of good property and then have 25% of a stock portfolio owned by this you know, OZ all of the stuff is going to be eligible for the exclusion of gain on the data sale, assuming the investor holds the partnership interest in the QOF 10 years. Great question. Now, uh, kind of, I have a follow-up question on that. If you are an LP coming into a large fund with a lot of LPs and you get your check in on January 1, but then the last investor doesn't get his check in until December 31, when does the clock start ticking it starts ticking for you on January 1 but the fund might want to stay open for that last investor right or not open for the last investor yeah. but the fund might not want to divest until that last investor reaches his or her tenure hold is that right that's right it, it, for each it, it, in that case if they sold in you know 10 years 
uh, in the in six months from the first investor, which would be nine years and six months from your last investor, the first investor's experience would get all the benefits and the last investor would not. And so incidentally, that's why we have uh, multiple OZ funds where we will raise capital for and then close it down at the end of the year and clone the documents and start another one and another one and another one so that all the investors are roughly grouped together uh, in, you know, in that OZ fund. So their 10-year clocks are roughly contemporaneous, you know, with each other. But yeah, it's going to, you're going to want to wait 10 years to the, from the last investor to, if you want those benefits for your investors. All right, we got three minutes left, Kirk. We got about twenty more questions, so we're not going to get to all of them, but we'll try to get to. Uh, as I'll many mention as we can. we're going to do a, we're going to do another event next week. Uh, we'll send that out, and we can have a Q and A for as long as you want. But anyway, let's get to a couple more. Very good. So Christy asked, "Is there a difference between fiscal year and calendar year?" Kirk mentioned calendar year ending March thirty first. Isn't it still one hundred and eighty days? Yeah. So the rule about Kate, you're talking about uh, when does my 180 day clock start for a capital gain that is passed through to an, uh, an individual or an entity on a K-1. Um, first off, I didn't mention this earlier, but the entity itself has 180 days and it could do uh, opportunity zone investment in the name of the entity uh, at, at the entity level. But if the entity level doesn't do it, the individual who receives the K-1 uh, they have a 180-day clock, and it starts on one of three dates. The date of the transaction, if they want to, and they know about it, um, December 31st, the end of the year, or the due date of the tax return, not including extensions, which is March 15th for a full calendar year partnership. I keep saying that because everybody says it's March 15th if you get a K-1. That's not true. It's only true if it's a full year entity. I see some things where they shut it down in their final year, where they sell off the business and they do a short year and they shut down the entity and they give them a K-1. Well, if it's not a full year entity, the due date for the tax return isn't March 15th anymore. So it's whatever the due date of the tax return is, is the start of the 180 day clock, not including extensions. So for most partnerships, that due date is going to be March 15th which means you got 180 days, which is through September 11th. It's not six months, it's not September 15th. It literally is 180 days, which is around September 11th. Excellent. Uh, well, we have reached one hour now. It's uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time. So uh, if you are here for the CPE credit, you've done it. <laughs> you've, you've successfully completed your requirements uh, for the most part, but I do need to get you the link to the evaluation form. So let me find that and uh, post that in the chat. And then one other notice is that uh, we are going to post this to our YouTube channel um, by tomorrow. So I'm going to post a link to our YouTube channel right now. And then I also need to get you a link to the evaluation form. Kirk, while I look for that, I don't know if you have any other last thoughts or if you want to talk to people about the upcoming webinar that you're hosting next week. It's designed to be an open forum Q&A, uh, just like we've been doing here to give you an opportunity. And of course, uh, uh, you know, my contact info is uh, above my name on the screen. You can see that. Uh, feel free to reach out, email or call anytime. I love, I'm super passionate about this. Uh, I love talking about this. Even if people don't invest with us, I just love talking about this uh, stuff and helping people and making sure they do it right. Um, I really... Um, hate to see people overpay on taxes unnecessarily. And this is, has such a potential impact uh, for the right investor, for the wealthy 
it's uh, it's worth investigating for your clients and getting it right. In fact, the last thing I'll say as a best practice tip to you CPAs is I would include in your cover letter that goes out early in the tax season cycle a question about did you incur a capital gain and are you interested in looking at an opportunity zone fund investment to defer that capital gain? Because uh, I, I hate to hear of the story, and I know it's going to happen someday, where some CPA calls up a client, hey, I know you just sold your business a few months ago. Do you know about, you don't have to pay tax on it. We could do an opportunity zone fund invested. And then the guy says, yeah, but that was uh, six and a half months ago. Oh no, now you can't. You know, like you want to, and the same is also true with uh, 1099B. You're going to get the 1099B. But, you know, if you look at that on April 15th, you only have the last month and a half of the prior year capital gain transactions to defer the gain. You want to flag those investors that you know have big capital gains and you want to put the onus on them as a best practice tip to notify you that they want to do this to just avoid any potential like uh, complaints. Well, why don't you tell me about this? You know, um, you want to look at the 1099Bs early. You want to be talking to your wealthy investors during the year. Give me a realized gain loss report for the year um, and look at stuff that's happened. Because if you wait till you get the 1099B, stuff that happened in January to June and your individual name is completely gone, uh, you're really down to the last couple of months of the year. Very good. Well, Kirk, we've run out of time. We went a few minutes over. I'm going to cut us off there. Um, I did post Kirk's email address in the chat. If we didn't get to your question, feel free to email Kirk. Sorry, Kirk, you're going to get spammed now, but you've got, you want people to email. I love it. I, <laughs> so, I love it. I, I legitimately love it. So bring it on. Uh, yeah. And, it. And, and we'll try to reach out to you if we didn't get to your question. Um, sorry, I guess we probably did like two or three hours to, to get to everyone's question today, but uh, and we'll send some more information about the webinar that Kirk and his team will be conducting next week. One more reminder, the recording of this presentation will be uh, put up on the Wealth Channel YouTube channel by tomorrow. I've posted the link to that in the chat and the deck, the link to that is in the chat as well. We'll follow up with an email that contains all of this information a little bit later today. Kirk, this was awesome. We should do it again sometime. What do you say? Uh, sounds great. You know, Jimmy, I forgot to mention you got your Notre Dame hat back there. We got a project yeah. and I, I forgot to mention our Notre Dame project is going to open in a couple months. And, you know, we bought an old medical office building, flipped it into uh, apartments for student housing in, in about 15, 18 months. And, you know, it's a perfect example of an OZ project. Uh, so we'll talk about that next week. Uh, <laughs> the great. kinds of projects you can do. Anyway. Thanks, Jimmy. Great to be here. Thank you, Kirk. And thank you, everybody, for attending today. Really appreciate your time and attention. Thank you so much. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, you can find us online at opportunitydb.com. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB by Wealth Channel. This podcast is available on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and all other podcast listening platforms. Just hit that subscribe or follow button so you get all of our new episodes as we release them. And we'll be back soon with another exciting episode.